the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into our third hour of our daily three-hour tour. It is a delight and a privilege to welcome back to the show Josh Hammer, among other things. He is the opinion editor of Newsweek. He's a research fellow at the Edmund Burke Foundation. I was talking about a little bit earlier in the show, and I'll have some concluding thoughts on he is uh, taking part in an interesting uh, series, uh, interesting set of arguments, discussion, however you want to frame it, in the new Criterion, uh, which is our friend uh, Mr. Kimball's uh, publication, on uh, various formulations of conservatism, conservatism uh, for the modern or new era, if you will, uh, or how we should view conservatism given our current challenges. Josh, welcome back to the show. Thanks for doing this. Jeff, it's always a pleasure. I hope you're having a great holiday. Season. Yeah, I hope you too. And uh, in case we don't get the chance, let me wish you a happy new year uh, and a happy 2022. Your formulation is common good originalism, if I have this right. you want to say a few words about it and about this discussion, debate, exchange of ideas? Sure. So there's a lot of kind of like intellectual strands of thought that are kind of colliding or intersecting here, if you will. So the jurisprudential component of a lot of the quote-unquote, newer stuff. I don't really know how else to say it. A lot of kind of like newfound, more aggressive, nationalist, populist, or you want to call it instinct. My personal take on that, as I fleshed out in a series of essays um, at greatest length in a Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy piece of legal scholarship from this past June, is what I call common good originalism. Okay. This specific approach to constitutional interpretation. Yeah, I, I, there's certainly a lot of similarities I think to kind of how our friends at Claremont and kind of the Harry Jaffa, how the RV school thought would, would go about it. I, I think there are some differences, but there's a lot of similarities there. But for me personally, at least, I try to conceptualize common good originalism as just being kind of the jurisprudential component of common good conservatism, national conservatism, kind of whatever you want to think of it as. And then, of course, you know, Marco Rubio has given speeches on common good capitalism that okay. kind of gets into the, into the political economy. So there's a lot of moving parts here, but the symposium that Roger put together for the new criterion, which is just such a wonderful symposium, yep. I you know, strongly encourage the listeners to go out and pick up a copy of the new criterion at the local newsstand here. Um, specifically in the essay that I wrote for that, I was responding, I guess we all were responding, to an initial essay written by former Heritage Foundation senior vice president by the name of Kim Holmes, right. who uh, seems to not be a particularly big fan of me, to be, to, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe <laughs> everyone who's written in response to, in a way. It's all right. It's okay. Yeah, no, no, totally, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, of all the responses, I, I, I'm not sure a single one basically said Kim Holmes is right. Yeah, none um, of them have that I've read. Yeah, okay. Right, Um but, you know, I kind of provocatively titled my essay. I give Roger Kimball, that is, a lot of credit for keeping my suggested provocative title. Um, I, I titled my essay, Yesterday's Man, Yesterday's Conservatism, mm-hmm. because I thought Kim's essay was very much yesterday's conservatism. It was kind of filled with all sorts of kind of neoliberal platitudes, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, about how kind of the, you know, uh, John Locke is like the preeminent founder of all founders, uh, intellectually speaking. 
um, classical liberalism, conservatism means conserving classical liberalism. This is what we would today call kind of David Frenchism, what Sobermari is kind of accurately now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me remind people of that about two two years ago, is that about? Yeah, 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 yeah. David French conservatism, David Frenchism. I remember that. Sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so that was a May 2019 essay that Sorab wrote called Against David Frenchism. And, and what he's saying there, which basically is what Tim Holmes is saying in this essay, is that America was founded as kind of a purely classical liberal, kind of purist, kind of live-in, let-live republic, um, where, you know, kind of like John Stuart Mill, uh, kind, of, kind of this kind of just tolerance, you know, like let every man, let every community, every society live according to their own conception of the good. The issue here, Seth, as you know, is a good Claremonster, is that that isn't our tradition. Um, I was just going to say, you don't go to America to find these thoughts, yeah. Right. The, if, you, if you read carefully between the lines, between kind of these, I guess what I would refer to as classical liberal absolutists, mm-hmm. people who think that a classical conception of liberalism divorced from, from any objection of kind of natural order or transcendental you know, truth, or, um, or, or just the, the notion of good itself. The issue is that that kind of gets you to the Stephen Douglas stance and the 1858 Lincoln Douglas debates, where mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. there's no there's no conception of the good that should be up to kind of majoritarian people and kind of their various um, yeah. yeah there, there's, there's no limits on a majority. There's no limits on the positive law. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So. What, what national conservatism is, I think of it, and again, common good originals is kind of like the jurisprudential components here, is we're suggesting that all of our various institutions, whether it's constitutional interpretation, whether it's the free market economy, all of these things are necessarily oriented to certain ends, what, what Aristotle would call the telos, mm-hmm. you know, the teleology of the constitutional order, really of the American Republic. Right. And my argument is that we can't engage in politics without understanding that basic truism. And that's, that's kind of my bone to pick of all bones to pick, I think, with Tim Holmes, David French, and people like that. Well, one of the things that is unfortunate about our times, Josh, I think, is that the way you look at it, I'd like to think the way I look at it, too, wouldn't have been debatable 100 years ago in in, in academies that took you know, our founding or, you know, our history seriously. It, it, it wouldn't, it, the, the, this debate wouldn't really exist very, very much in the sense that we kind of all agreed on what originalism was. We kind of all pretty much agreed on, uh, you know, what an, a, a certain outcome would be over a given controversy while or whence looking at the Constitution. And that's what seems to have fallen apart, isn't it? Um, it, it? It seems like it's not only fallen apart with the left, but tragically with way too many conservatives. Uh, way too many conservatives have, have very, very odd views about what should be animating our constitutional interpretation. So I think that basically right, Seth, I mean, I, really kind of the issue that really kind of solidifies this, I think, or hopefully does so for the listeners, is kind of the issue of public religiosity oh, and the sure. establishment of, of, sure. of religion. Sure. Um, you know, I think anyone who's read the First Amendment can tell you the phrase separation of church and state is nowhere in there. Um, and, you know, in fact, it appeared in, in a letter that then-President Thomas Jefferson wrote to a, a convention of Baptists in Danbury, Connecticut, and I think it was 1802 or 1803, I think yep. it was 1802. Yeah. 
um, where he first kind of floated the rhetoric of quote-unquote separation of church and mm-hmm. state. But that wasn't actually adopted into the Supreme Court. Like 1947 law. is the first time, I think. Yeah, wasn't it the Everson exactly, case or something like that? Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah, the Everson yeah, yeah. case of 1947. And then by the, the way, they said, by the way, the justices said, not only a wall of separation, if memory serves, but high and impregnable, which is actually not even in Thomas Jefferson's writing, I don't think, if I'm not mistaken. High and impregnable wasn't even in Jefferson's yeah. writing. Yeah. Wild, wild rhetoric, yeah. right? Um, right. But from there, I think, you know, it was less than 15 years until the Bible and school prayer were banned That's right. from, from, from public schools. But, yeah, that would have been completely ludicrous to an earlier and, I would argue, saner generation of Americans. I mean, uh, at the time of the founding, the Establishment Clause, the First Amendment, was essentially just a, actually a federalism position, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. it was saying Congress shall make no law. That's the right. can, and in fact, did for for decades and decades up until really the 1830s 1840s did establish their, mm-hmm. their state religion. So um, this notion that our constitutional order and kind of just our politics in general cannot and should not be oriented towards certain ends, and of course, kind of the Judeo-Christian, you know, ethical uh, and religious framework being kind of the end of all ends. There, the notion that our constitutional order is not oriented to those ends uh, is it, it, just. It's ludicrous, and it's it's ahistorical to kind of look back and pretend that that is not the case. Josh, who uh, in on the Supreme Court now, or in the Supreme Court in recent memory, or in history, who embraces what you're talking about, or who's 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 a good example or exemplar of someone who holds up the the, the kind of conservative jurisprudence or the originalist jurisprudence that you're talking about? So the two justices on the current court really who come to mind are. Clarence Thomas and, and, and Sam Alito. Now that's the right um, answer. I was gonna. I was gonna hope you said Alito. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I'm. The, I'm actually a huge fan of Alito. So Me too. Everyone, Me too. It, I mean, every, everyone in conservative world rightfully loves Clarence Thomas. Yeah, he, but he, I think Alito's a, worth paying more attention to. I honestly do. Well, it's funny you mention that, Jeff. Actually, so in that Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy essay that I mentioned earlier, where I kind of flesh out what I call common good originalism at greatest length, and you know, I definitely would encourage that for kind of the the nerdier listeners out there, I guess, for lack of a better term. Um, I actually, toward the end of the essay, I say that just as Anthony Scalia kind of emerged as the avatar for kind of a positivist conception of originalism, mm-hmm. it's easy to, it's easy to foresee a world where Sam Alito, not necessarily Thomas, but Sam Alito, becomes kind of the avatar of what I call common good originalism. And you can see this actually in some of it, 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 really in some of his writings, and two cases come come immediately to mind. There's there's this, they're both First Amendment cases. Actually, Snyder v. Phelps um, is one, isn't it? Wouldn't you think? Yep, absolutely. Okay, good. That's, I, that's I, the I, one I hold but, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and basically a virtually analogous case. Um, I, I'm blanking on the name of the actual case, but it's the Animal Crush video case. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Which yeah. was a little more recently. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I think it was maybe two years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Snyder's uh, about uh, ten years old now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, but, but but basically the same legal question, um, you know, uh, is how far to take kind of this absolute conception of freedom of speech, and you know, the short answer from in both cases uh, from Justice Alito is that free speech was not and is not absolute. Right. That there are certain kind of inherent kind of moral constraints on what speech qua speech actually is. It, right. It's a very, very kind of like natural law yep. regarded argument about yep. kind of um, the ability of jurists, of statesmen, to kind of assess the moral worth of speech. And um, I'm a huge fan of Sam Alito, but, you know, Justice Thomas, uh, to kind of go back to the Establishment Clause example here, 
that in, in 2014, a thousand case called Greece versus town of, or, or town of Greece versus Galway, I should say, out of upstate New York. Um, Justice Thomas wrote a, wrote a sole concurrence. He was not joined by either Scalia or Alito at the time, actually, where he basically took the exact view on the establishment clause that I just said. That it was actually, uh, really just a federalist provision here. So, so he's kind of put himself out there on, on, on that one. So, uh, you know, look, I, I think Thomas and Alito are, by orders of magnitude, the two best justices yep. on, on, on the current court totally right agree. now. But, but Sam Alito, he really does have a special place yep. in my heart. He does not. He does not get nearly, nearly enough credit as, as he should among conservatives. Oh, I totally agree. I totally agree, Josh. This is great. Thank you, sir. I know it's a busy season, but I had to get you on to talk about this and get us going on it. By the way, I guess if I wanted to help the audience on understanding that history of the establishment clause, you may have better sources before I let you go. But uh, I, I love the work of Robert Cord, and if people want a summary of that. I think I would point them to uh, Justice Rehnquist's dissent in a case called Wallace v. Jaffrey. It's a beautiful history of the Establishment Clause that you don't get at most law schools. I don't know if you have better sources than that, but that's well, where I would the only, uh, to go. The scholar who comes to mind as far as Establishment Clause jurisprudence is concerned, it, it's funny because he's actually now known more for administrative law. It's kind of his newer focus. I mean, he, he's really kind of a polymath, honestly. But Phil, Phil Hamburger. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in an earlier stage of his scholarship, yep. was, was beautiful on the establishment yep. clause. So yep. strong, yep. strong, would strongly recommend his work as well. Good call. All right. We geeked out a little bit, Josh, on radio. It was good. I love it. I love doing it. <laughs> hey, thank you for it. everything. Um, listen, thanks for getting us through 2021 with some degree of sanity, and uh, we're going to keep you close in 2022. Sounds great. I look forward to it very much. Happy uh, New Year. God bless you, sir. Thank you. I'm Seth Liebson. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I, I, I got a couple emails on this. I just want to clear the decks with my own, adding my own confusion to it. We spent some time on this yesterday uh, among five major, major changes in December on instruction, edict, UCOTS, uh over how to handle and live with COVID from the CDC. There have been five major changes this month alone to be added to the 20 changes uh, over the last year or so of contradictory information. Is this one having to deal with um, quarantine periods, especially for those with Omicron? And there's something I have to confess my confusion on, um, but perhaps this confession illustrates the entire set of problems we've had with following government guidance or at least uh, preferred government's guidance on what to do here. So as many of you are are aware, um, the CDC as of uh, this week has changed its recommendation for isolation or quarantining uh, if you um, – if you uh, if you uh, obtained the uh, positive uh, a positive result or a positive t- if you tested positive for for COVID nineteen specifically and especially Omicron, let me just read you the CDC's uh, first sentence, uh, if if I might, and this is on the uh, website uh, uh, isolation quarantine guidance. Uh, the CDC it was issued December twenty seventh, two days ago. Given what we currently know about COVID-19 and the Omicron variant, CDC is shortening the recommended time 
for isolation from 10 days for people with COVID-19 to five days. If asymptomatic, followed by five days of wearing a mask when around others. That's one sentence. I'll give it to you again. Given what we currently know about COVID-19 and the Omicron variant, CDC is shortening the recommended time for isolation from 10 days for people with COVID-19 to five days if asymptomatic, followed by five days of wearing a mask when around others. Do you immediately get a question out of that sentence? Do you have one, Bill? Does one strike you? Does something strike you there as odd? I thought we were supposed to wear a mask. That's exactly what jumped up to me. Whence all of a sudden is a mask only needed for five days after you've tested positive and you're asymptomatic? That's exactly what I seized on. And we didn't discuss <laughs> we didn't discuss this. In fact, so if you go to the CDC on uh, on 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 masks and uh, and 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 look, did we did we change Somehow, did we change the the recommendations and the guidance that everyone has to be masked in public? No, no, we didn't. We absolutely didn't. It says everyone in a high transmission setting should wear a mask in public indoor settings. Wear a mask in public indoor settings. Now, you may ask, well, maybe the out is high transmission, high community tra- a place of high community transmission. Find me a place that isn't. Arizona, all of Arizona is a high community transmission according to the CDC. San Francisco County, I just picked one that likes to brag about how compliant they are with things. I went to San Francisco County. High community transmission. Everyone in San Francisco County, California, this is not from the state, this is from the CDC. Everyone in San Francisco County, California, should wear a mask in public indoor settings. But, but I guess if you've had COVID-19 and you are now asymptomatic for five days, you just have to wear a mask for another five days when around others. It's a very this is the this is exactly why no one is in compliance. This is exactly why anyone who shames anyone else for not doing X can just as easily be shamed for not doing Y because X and Y are tautological. They are doublethink and they are absolutely without question indiscernible to the common person to understand. If we want to blame Joe Biden for getting this wrong a lot, I do, and I do, because he's the president, and he's the one who said he would solve this, and he's the one who said Donald Trump wasn't doing it right, and Anthony Fauci was saying that this is going to be an administration unlike the last one that doesn't guess if it doesn't know something. If you want to understand what they're trying to tell us with this new guidance on masking, and five days, good luck to you. Good luck to you. I walked by an office today that said, in compliance with the CDC, everyone entering must wear a mask. Must wear a mask. Well, is that different now or isn't it? And is anyone going to ask Joe Biden about this? (coughs) I will tell you, he won't have a clue. If you ask Rochelle Walensky about it, you may get an answer that's good for today. 
but it won't be the same answer tomorrow. And Anthony Fauci just won't take questions on it. Hell of a team we got leading us through this thing, isn't it? We'll be right back. Well, you know, one of the new things in this administration is if you don't know the answer, don't guess. <laughs> Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Having uh, talked with uh, Josh Hammer and having discussed with others various, I don't know what you would call it, themes, flavors, movements – uh, within the conservative movement generally, within the conservative effort generally, I think all of them are interesting. And I think the debates between the various conservative movements are interesting, whether you're talking about national greatness conservatism or any kind of common good conservatism, any of these movements – a lot of which have sprung up, particularly since 2016, because I think it is fair to say Donald Trump reoriented the conservative movement and the Republican Party somewhat. Not as much as people think. I think he reoriented it. And I'm not in the majority of thinkers on this. I just think I'm right. I think he reoriented it to the way it started in the modern era. I think the most fallacious statement about Donald Trump and the Republican Party is that it's a party the likes of which William Buckley and Ronald Reagan wouldn't recognize. I think that's the most fallacious statement. I think what has happened is people forgot our tablets. People forgot the modern American conservative movement, which began in the 1950s, basically with the advent of National Review uh, with the um, with the uh, then book Conscience of a Conservative and the Goldwater Candidacy of 64 and then the 16 years between 1964 and the Reagan election of 1980, the Reagan victory in 1980. And the reason I say that is if you look at the founding documents of the modern American conservative movement, you don't see – Anything that different that Donald Trump stood for, the, the tablets of National Review and the Goldwater candidacy didn't stand for. The, the, the very first issue of National Review – I write a lot about this in the book I co-authored, American Greatness. The, um, the initial issue of National Review in 1955 had a mission statement. Many of you are familiar with the phrase uh, that National Review was – founded to stand athwart history and yell stop comes from their uh, first issue in 1955 their mission statement that was written by bill buckley and it came with uh, what the magazine called what bill buckley called credenda credenda is plural for creed and it had a seven points and Given an update of the times, what might, one, one might say mutatis mutandis, I don't think there's anything different that Donald Trump stood for that the founders of National Review didn't stand for. I'll read you those credenda. One, 
It is the job of centralized government to protect citizens' lives, liberty, and property. All other activities of government tend to diminish freedom and hamper progress. The growth of government must be fought relentlessly. In this great social conflict of the era, we are, without reservation, on the libertarian side. Well, different language. You've heard phrases like the blob, the deep state, uh, the bureaucracy. All of that was Donald Trump, too. Two, this is National Review, 1955. The profound crisis of our era is, in essence, the conflict between the social engineers who seek to adjust mankind to conform with certain scientific utopias and the disciples of truth who defend the organic moral order. We believe that truth is neither arrived at nor illuminated by modern monitoring election results binding, though these are for other purposes, but by other means, including a study of human experience. On this point, we are without reservation, on the conservative side. That's standard traditional conservatism. Donald Trump believed it. Ronald Reagan believed it. Barry Goldwater believed it. Social engineering shouldn't come from Washington, D.C. C. Three, the century's most blatant force of satanic utopianism is communism. We consider coexistence with communism neither desirable nor possible nor honorable. We find ourselves irrevocably at war with communism and shall oppose any substitute for victory. One could, this is where you get into the mutatis mutandis of it all, one could just as easily say communism or socialism here at home now or radical Islam. And it's the same point. We'll continue this thought and discussion when we come right back. Welcome back. I'm just pointing out that these debates about what kind of a conservative we are, what kind of a conservative movement we should be, are interesting. They're thought-provoking. Hopefully, they're energizing. But I think at the end of the day, they're academic in respect to how distinct or different any of this is. If you think of the conservative movement having – or at least the modern conservative movement having been born in the 1950s with William Buckley and National Review – and continuing that thread or that ribbon through history to today. I'm going through National Review's first issue, its mission statement, and pointing out that if Donald Trump reoriented or changed anything, it was really a revolution in the sense of taking us back to our origins. That's what a re revolution actually is. It's a return. It's a reset back to the basic and fundamentals. In the last segment, I discussed... Uh, the first three uh, credenda beliefs of National Review in 1955 and what Bill Buckley was fighting for. And I just don't think they're that different from anything Goldwater, Reagan or Trump said. Again, with a little bit of change given chronology, events and dating. For example, the uh, fourth mission uh, – fourth uh, creed, fourth mission statement of National Review is – the largest cultural menace in America is the conformity of the intellectual cliques, which in education as well as the arts are out to impose upon the nation their modish fads and fallacies and have nearly succeeded in doing so. In this cultural issue, we are without reservation on the side of excellence rather than newness and of honest intellectual combat rather than conformity. Yeah, conformity and intellectual cliques, you bet. That's what you get at the universities. 
That's what you get in the C-suites of the corporations. That's what you might call the woke. The fifth one, the fifth creed, the most alarming single danger to the American political system lies in the fact that an identifiable team of Fabian operators, just think socialist for now, is bent on controlling both our major political parties under the sanction of such fatuous and unreasonable slogans as national unity, middle of the road, progressivism, bipartisanship. Clever intriguers are reshaping both parties in the image of Babbitt gone Social Democrat. When and where this political issue arises, we are without reservation on the side of the traditional two-party system that fights its feuds in public and honestly, and we shall advocate the restoration of the two-party system at all costs. In other words, to take control of the Republican Party. That was what Bill Buckley and Barry Goldwater struggled for for years, for years. To wit, extremism in the defense of liberty, Barry Goldwater's famous statement, was not about Vietnam. It wasn't about the Soviet Union. It's about fellow Republicans. It was about Nelson Rockefeller and Mitt Romney's dad, George Romney, and Scranton uh, uh, as well. The sixth point, the competitive price system is indispensable to liberty and material progress. It is threatened not only by the growth of big government but by the pressure of monopolies, including union monopolies. What is more, some labor unions have clearly identified themselves with doctrinaire socialist objectives. The characteristic problems of harassed businesses have gone unreported for years with the result that the public has been taught to assume almost instinctively that conflicts between labor and management are generally traceable to greed and intransigence on the part of management. Sometimes they are, often they are not. To violate the businessman's side of the story is not conservative. That's Trump. That's Reagan. And finally, no superstition has more effectively bewitched America's liberal elite than the fashionable concepts of world government, the United Nations, internationalism, international atomic pools, etc. Perhaps the most important and readily demonstrable lesson of history is that freedom goes hand in hand with a state of political decentralization. That remote government is irresponsible government. It would make greater sense to grant independence to each of our 50 states than to surrender U.S. sovereignty to a world organization. How much did Donald Trump talk about not getting entangled in things like the United Nations and making foreign aid make sense? There's nothing about the modern conservative movement, however you want to divide it, that is different from National Review's founding. The Sharon Statement, which came together in 1960 from the Young Americans for Freedom to animate the Goldwater candidacy of 64, was also brief. And again, if you go through it, you will find no distinctions there between Republicans today or the base of the Republican Party today and what the Sharon Statement said, written at Bill Buckley's house in Connecticut. We, as young conservatives, believe that foremost among the transcendent values is the individual's use of his God-given free will, once derives his right to be free from the restrictions of arbitrary force, that liberty is indivisible, and that political freedom cannot long exist without economic freedom, that the purpose of government is to protect those freedoms through the preservation of internal order, the provision of a national defense, and the administration of justice, and that when government ventures beyond these rightful functions, it accumulates power which tends to diminish order and liberty. 
that the Constitution of the United States is the best arrangement yet devised for empowering government to fulfill its proper role while restraining it from the concentration and abuse of power, that the genius of the Constitution, the division of powers, is summed up in the clause that reserves primacy to the several states or to the people in those spheres not specifically designated to the federal government, that the market economy allocating resources by the free play of support of supply and demand is the single economic system compatible with the requirements of personal freedom and constitutional government, that it is at the same time the most productive supplier of human needs, and that when government interferes with the work of the market economy, it tends to reduce the moral and physical strength of the nation, that when it takes from one man to bestow on another, it diminishes the incentive of the first, the integrity of the second, and the moral autonomy of both. There's a few more sentences, but um, the only the only asterisk I would hang on this right there, that last point, is you will notice a part of the conservative movement is much more anti-corporation than it used to be, verbally so, visibly so. There's only one reason for that, and it's not a hate of the free market system or capitalism. It's that the heads of those corporations have become socialists. That's the problem. That's the problem. They are the ones who are least in favor of the free market economy and the free exchange of ideas. In other words, these fights are interesting. As I say, I hope they're energizing these internal disputes, these internecine conservative wars. But at the end of the day, academic. And at the end of the day, people who say what we have now is different than what we had then are simply wrong on their history. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. So if there's a third tablet between the National Review founding and mission statement and the Sharon statement from the Young Americans for Freedom to animate the Goldwater campaign, it would probably be Barry Goldwater's 1960 book, Conscience of a Conservative, where in the intro he writes, I do not blame my brethren in government, all of whom work hard and conscientiously at their job for the failures of conservatism. I blame conservatives, ourselves, myself. Our failure, as one conservative writer has put it, is the failure of the conservative demonstration. Though we conservatives are deeply persuaded that our society is ailing and know that conservatism holds the key to national salvation and feel sure the country agrees with us, we seem unable to demonstrate the practical relevance of conservative principles to the needs of the day. We sit impotently while Congress seeks to improvise solutions to problems that are not the real problems facing the country, while the government attempts to assuage imagined concerns and ignores the real concerns and real needs of the people. Think about that. Think about that. When a Republican comes on the scene and talks like that and talks about what's going on in Congress and what's motivating and taking the time and consuming the energy of most of what gets done in Washington, D.C., who's it on behalf of? Who's it on behalf of? Does it match and meet your daily concerns and your friends and your families? Or do you get the sense that sounds a lot like there's probably a lot of big money and K Street lobbyists pushing a lot of the a lot of the energies on Capitol Hill? In other words, at the end of the day, 
It's what I said yesterday. Conservatism isn't really about any kind of rights, federal, state, or any other kind, except the most important, first and foremost, individual rights. Individual rights. Once that's gone, there's nothing about a collective that matters. There's nothing about a group that matters. Because collectives and groups are made up of individuals. You forget the individual and your concerns become otherworldly and in most cases irrelevant, paid for by the highest bidder. My plea is be a good conservative and go back and read the animating and original tablets. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. Thanks for spending some of your day with us. God bless and class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.